This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, episode 24. I'm a big believer that, yeah, we can look at volume, we can look at load, we can look at all these things, but really, people are the ultimate performance variable. And if you don't know what makes them tick, you're going to be a pretty poor coach. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, NSCA Head Strength and Conditioning Coach, Scott Caulfield. With me on the podcast today, excited, my friend, Brett Bartholomew, Strength and Conditioning Coach and founder of The Bridge Human Performance out of Atlanta, Georgia. Brett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Scott. Been a long time coming. Excited for it, man. And uh, this, let's talk quickly about uh, the bridge, the new uh, endeavor. So you're in Atlanta. How long have you been there, and what what do you got going on? Yeah, so we moved in April. So I've been there since April, and we're now talking. Depending on the, when the release is, we're, we're in July. Uh, the goal was, you know, I had had experience in both the team setting and private side throughout my career, but I always felt like there's a pretty big gap between the two, right? Like there's a lot of misnomers about what each side is like. People think the private sector is more personal training. Some people think uh, team coaches get comfortable in their roles and it's kind of glorified. And I think there's a lot more commonalities between the two than most realize, right? Like team coaches are on the front lines of really having to solve some interesting problems. At the same time, there's a lot of private sector facilities and I've been fortunate enough to be a part of quite a few of them that have to solve those same kind of problems, right? Imperfect periodization strategies because you have athletes coming from varied backgrounds, differences. You don't always have the budget that you want. If you have the budget you want, you may not have the support that you want. So there's this kind of dichotomy or gap that exists. And you find that there's a lot of coaches that don't really know where to go with their career. Um, So we wanted to create kind of this third space a place that, you know, was, yeah, it's in the private sector, but it's more team oriented. We do train more large groups. You can have groups of anywhere from five to 35. Uh, you don't have a gaggle of, of strength coaches always assisting you. Sometimes it's you yeah. and an intern that's relatively green that's there as well. Um, another goal of the facility is to be really focused on coach development. That was a big pillar of what my book was written on is you know, we're in an unparalleled time of technology right now, but I don't know that we have as many skilled craftsmen as we used to, sure. you know, and it doesn't do any good if you don't know how to coach, you don't know how to connect, you don't know how to do these things. So the point of the bridge is a behavioral, um, physiological and kind of cultural, just third piece or center hub there that hopefully uh, can be a welcoming kind of positive impact on the field. Yeah, that's cool. And did you see that, uh, you know, you had, you had experience in the collegiate setting, a really good experience, like you said, in private sector where you worked. Uh, was it? Did this all kind of come from seeing um, gaps, or you know, just a vision that you wanted to build this kind of ultimate like training and learning um, atmosphere? Yeah, to yeah. a degree. I just, I, I think that I'm really a fifty-fifty guy. You know, there's been times in my career where I thought I would have gone back to the team side and transparently two years ago I had an NFL opportunity that I would have but I had already accepted a new role um, and I was raised with the belief that you you know you hold true to your word um, but I also like the freedom of the private side and you know I like working with a variety of athletes so I primarily specialize with NFL veterans I don't do much in the combine space though we'll help kids with pro days um, but I'll do veterans uh, UFC MMA boxing military was a real heavy influence so I like the variety there I feel like it keeps me sharp 
as opposed to being somebody that's only been rooted in one sport your whole career. I think yeah. I think that can be cool, but that can also be pretty dangerous because you start to develop some pretty strong bias. Um, the problem was is some of the team set or a private setting that I had been a part of didn't really allow you to be as much of a part of the field as I wanted to be. You know, I wasn't always able to come speak if you wanted me to speak or I couldn't attend coaches conference because we had certain kind of blackout travel dates based on what was going on at the facility. And I knew I wanted to be more involved with strength and conditioning as a whole because I didn't really have a mentor. Um, so I liked the freedom of that, but I liked the structure and organization of the team side. So I just wanted to try to create something that was a blend. Yeah. Now, well aware that it could flop, fall straight on its face. <laughs> right, right. I'm funding it myself. I don't have, this isn't going to be any mega conglomerate. But my wife and I, you know, we don't have kids, so we decided we'd give it a try. If not, you know, we'll move on from there. But yeah. you have to put, you have to take risks, so sure. why not? Cool. No, I'm looking forward to seeing it, man. So how did you pick Atlanta? What was the kind of uh, rationale? There. Or, yeah, yeah there were several reasons. One, we kind of felt, and I don't mean any disrespect to anybody, if they're in the Atlanta area, we're still learning a lot about it. Um, but a number of my athletes that had lived in the area, primarily on the pro football side, just felt like, they didn't really have anywhere to go that wasn't, you know, a lot of these places were just combine spots or they were kind of conveyor belt facilities. And that's their term, not mine. They just felt like they came in, you know, it, it felt more corporate than anything. They didn't really feel like they got coaching. And you see that a lot. People battling over who's got the best training and who's got the best this. I'm not trying to sit here and I wouldn't be narcissistic enough to say my training is the best training. I know this hands down. I do think, you know, I'm a decent coach, yeah. um, but I think that we're going to focus on great coaching. Yeah. You know, like if I can't get you right with a dumbbell, some barbells and doing some sprints and movement and plyometrics, then I don't know that I should have a job in the field. Yeah. Um, so athletes felt like there was a need there. My wife is in love with anything green. So nice. Atlanta is just a massive force. We loved cool. Phoenix. Um, yeah. So we knew we were either going to be somewhere in the South or the Southwest. And we decided to try it here. So excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And so you talked a little bit about, you know, being a good coach. What in all these avenues too that you've had success in tactical team setting, private sector, what are the keys, you know, or the fundamentals that you need to be a good coach? Yeah. So I think this, that's a great question. And that was one that I tried to answer with the book. Like yeah. that term conscious yeah. coaching was more of like, awareness, right? And so I think it comes down to three aspects, the physiological, the psychological, and the cultural element. One, you need to know what drives people. And I don't mean motivation, right? Like we've all seen rah-rah kind of coaches. Right. I mean, people that actually know what drives, how to influence, how to get players to buy into things that they need to do, because you can have the best facility and the best tools. And ultimately these guys don't care about getting under 85%. And what that does to the nervous system the same way we do. So you need to be able to paint that picture in their mind's eye to get them to adhere to it. And only then do your training practices really matter to the utmost. Yeah. You know, and then there's a the cultural element, which I think matters not just for the athlete, but everybody in the profession. Right. I right. think you've seen it and can speak to it far better than I. But we're not that far removed from a time in our career where it was very closed door, nobody sharing anything. You still have it, right? Like everybody has the es esoteric secrets. Yeah. I want a place where people feel like they can walk in and it feels like a barber shop. They can come and chat and learn and listen and hang out. And nobody claims to have the answer. Yeah. We're all just interested in asking great questions. That's great. Um, cool. And we talked, you mentioned the book. Uh, we talked about the book before we started recording too. Uh, talk, tell me, how did you even think of that? It sounds it sounds to me like it's a huge 
project. Like I don't, when I think about writing a book, I'm right. like, oh my gosh, like how long, you know, where did it, where did the idea come from? How long of a process was it? And, you know, talk about specifically for those people who don't have it yet. I'm assuming a lot of people that are listening to this already have read it and are going to be excited to hear you talk about it a little more in depth. But why, uh, you know, what are they going to look forward to if they haven't read it yet? Yeah, well, the first thing and the question I get most often is people just saying, hey, you know, what's this about? Right. Because it's, it's tricky. If you don't write a book about training right now, right, people right. think that you're writing something on motivation and rah, rah, or these kind of like coaching ledgers. Yeah. This book, what we wanted to achieve was a little bit of the science, the behavioral sciences, right? What makes people tick? What goes into conflict, first impressions, conflict management, how to get into people's drives, how to uh, connect with what we call different archetypes of athletes, people that, you know, are motivated by different things and get them all to kind of work together in some kind of symphonic harmony. You know, so we all know that every team's kind of got what we call the Royal and the Royal is this athlete that, you know, they've always been told how great of an athlete they are. They're always catered to, they don't really feel like they need your coaching, what have you, you know, but you got to get them on the same page within that same team. You might have what we call the Wolverine, The Wolverine is somebody that's a little bit more rogue, withdrawn, irascible, kind of like the character, right? Like, you know, they have good intentions, but maybe they come from a poor, you know, a a pretty rough background. A Wolverine that I had coached saw his mother stabbed, right? Mm -hmm. And so this guy came in and eyes were always down on the ground, didn't really listen. And for some strength coaches that could be like, oh, this guy's not bought in. Oftentimes that kid's just in a different emotional space, right? And so there's all these different archetypes and we talk about 15 in the book. Um, I bring in 15 other strength coaches ranging from some in the NFL, some in military, and they all share their experiences with how they got those athletes on the same page and to buy into the program and and do what they need to do. It was cool because I actually got a chance to speak about it at Microsoft last week because they said they deal with the same issues. It's, you know, when you look at human performance as a whole, which is the business we're in, I'm a big believer that, yeah, we can look at volume, we can look at load, we can look at all these things, but really people are the ultimate performance variable. And if you don't know what makes them tick, you're going to be a pretty poor coach. Mm. Um, So that was kind of what it's about. It's about people and how to drive them, steer them, unite them and get them together. You won't find any motivational jargon. You won't find any kind of like place your hand, you know, put your arm around their back and this and that. It's just real stuff. Um, Where it came from is I was hospitalized when I was 15. Um, My friends did drugs. I had kind of a, you know, I had a good upbringing, great parents, but they were going through a divorce. I didn't really know how to deal with some of the anxiety and things that I was feeling. Um, So I turned that into just an obsession with training. I mean, I was lifting weights and running three times a day. I was eating what the magazine said at the time, which this is like the late 90s, early 2000s, low fat, you know, low carb. So I was doing it all. And I ended up malnourished with a resting heart rate of 34 beats per minute in a hospital in Minnesota. And I'm around all these people with, you know, they're all PhDs, they're all very intelligent, but what they saw when they saw any of us as patients was a symptom. They didn't see anybody else beyond that. So we all got the same kind of treatment. We all kind of were looked down upon. We were all looked at like things as opposed to like people. And that was my first really like recognition that somebody can be, in, somebody can be smart, but not intelligent. So long story short, I had to learn about proper training, proper nutrition to get myself out of this spot. Otherwise, I was going to die. I was in a cardiac arrest ward for about four months of my life. So I picked up Boyd Epley's Complete Conditioning for Football, Nancy Clark's Sports Nutrition Guidebook, 
we can all laugh about any of those books now, mm-hmm. depending on people's views. Yeah. But at 15, that just taught me some basics. Sure. So I started training and uh, learned about strength and conditioning formally. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is what I want to do. And then the book process itself to finalize that, it took three years gotcha. just because uh, m- like most of the listeners, I coach. Right. So the book right. was written between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. I self-published it because too many people wanted to kind of neuter the book. Yeah. They wanted it to be more of like a leadership book or yeah. they wanted to be like an exercise manual. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted something that was a little bit harder hitting and just yeah. said, honestly, here's some areas where we need to grow. So those are the pieces there. Yeah. One, how cool the testament to the reach that it's had right to get to talk to microsoft about these archetypes which cross over into everything right and that was something that i didn't expect but i think like if you were to ask me you know where do you see strength and conditioning going it almost irritates me and i use that choice purposefully to see that you know the world over we see these ceos speak we see all these people on different avenues speak but who has more varied experiences than strength and conditioning coaches? Right. Think of the right. things that we have to do. Think yeah. of the problems we have to solve. Yeah. So when Microsoft called, and we were fortunate because the book, as of yesterday, it's been out like four and a half months, sold its 10,000th copy. Right. They just said, we see these issues too. We want to learn how people deal with them in sport or military. So it would be great to see more strength coaches branch out, right? Yeah. Like not only yeah. do their due diligence and represent at the NSCA and all those things, but everybody's got a story to tell and we're more than just clipboard holding whistle blowing. And that's, that's how the public perceives us, Sure, you know? And if you get beyond that, oftentimes you're a sellout, Right. but no other industry has it looked that way. So it's interesting. Oh, that's great, man. Congratulations. Really nice. So, uh, talk a little bit about the profession. What do you think are kind of some of the, um, kind of big, I guess roadblocks or issues, you know, that the profession has right now, maybe where you see the NSCA being able to help out with some of that stuff. Yeah, I think, I think, and this might not be a popular answer, but I think one is just continued coach development. I think sometimes we can push practices and methods too much and not enough of just the intangibles of coaching. So I think that's a big piece. Um, and that's a psychosocial aspect, right? There's a reason universities the world over have sociology departments and behavioral economics courses, right? These things matter. I think the other thing is, you know, there's this notion that unless you've, you're, you know, you've coached X amount of years that you're not skilled. And I think we can all attest that we've found people in the trenches that are younger and have more diverse experience and they're pretty sharp. Now, on the other end, we have some twerps that, you know, just because of what they read, think that they can coach. But I think that they've got to get over this kind of, hey, you know, this person's been doing it X amount of years, therefore they're the epitome of coaching. You have to be able to really find talent everywhere because right now somewhere there's a probably a 25 year old coach that is working with very diverse populations in a situation that none of us had experience in. You know, and that was something I was fortunate with Exos. Like at 26, I was working with amputees, military, high school. So I put my foot in my mouth a lot. I came out kind of regurgitating like, oh, I'll never use machines and these kinds of things. And by and large, I don't. But when I'm dealing with a double amputee from the special forces, I'm probably going to use some machine training and manual resistance and things like that. So I think just getting rid of this old taste in our mouth that it's about how long you've done it as opposed to what you've done. Um, What's better team or private setting? Like NSC always talks about stronger together. I think that that's a big thing that that team and private stuff has to get removed. We're strength coaches, right? right? Bottom line. If you want to see a separation between what we're doing and maybe like 24 hour fitness and somebody that doesn't invest in their own, you know, development, 
that's another story. Yeah. So I just think the unification, the coach development and kind of getting rid of this old kind of like idea, you know, that it's, it's a, it's an age or, or location dependent thing. Right. And I think the great thing, the great like cliche, I think about that when you're saying that is like, there's a saying that's like, there's a difference between having 20 years of experience and one year of experience repeated 20 times, right? So no just question. because that person has 20 years of experience, if they haven't learned something new or changed a single thing about their training methods and thought process, that might not be the best person to learn from. No, really well <laughs> said. Yeah, you answered that better than I did. <laughs> uh, how about, you know, you've learned on, you know, from a lot of different people in these settings. What are some of the key things that you've learned from other people and who were, who were those people that have helped you along the way? Yeah, I think the first one is, you know, and one of my main mantras is do this simple thing savagely well. And that was something we learned at API, right? It was this idea that there's so much noise out there. You can get tricked into thinking that you have to do this advanced 40 minute warm up, and you have to do this and, you know, you have to cycle things this way and that way. And, and the majority of athletes, I think most would attest, no matter what level still need great foundational development. I mean, so much of the training theory we read and we should continue to read it, the majority of it, we're not going to be able to use, especially that, that we, you know, derive from these like translated texts and things like that. It's all great. And it's good to reference, but I think you have to do this simple thing savagely well, and sometimes put blinders on and stay consistent in what you're doing. Uh, cause you can get so caught up trying to follow the herd that now all of a sudden you're not even developing any, you know, original ideas of your own or learning those lessons. So I think that's a big one. The other one is, you know, being able to seek outside influences. If you're only learning from strength and conditioning, you're not broadening or you're not building yourself to the best of the ability. So it sounds like really odd, but I see a lot of parallels between the music industry and strength and conditioning. You're constantly trying to cater to a certain demand while staying true to a craft, right? And it's pretty Machiavellian as well. You know, we talk about the fact that you have coaches that will undercut other coaches in the profession nice. just so they can get, you know, alignment with a company or a team or a new pair of sweatpants. Yeah. So I think yeah. coaches would be well versed in investing in, you know, looking at business, looking at other aspects and really taking in those lessons and applying them here because we're smart, right? We're a science driven right. field, right. but other industries have solved these problems. Yeah. You look yeah. at Gallup, Gallup is a company that surveys fortune 500 companies the world over. And they've looked at engagement. They've looked at workplace behavior. They've worked at how can they get people in line with a certain kind of culture yeah. to adhere to practices. But we sit here and we talk about like we invented the world culture. Right. So I right. just think that we really have to be the multidisciplinary learners that we say that we are. Um, and that was stuff that was ingrained in me really early. Learn from everybody. Don't just learn from other strength coaches. That's great. That's huge, huge, I think, huge insight for especially a lot of new coaches that might listen to this. Um, also kind of along those lines for some up and coming coaches, what are things that you're looking for? You're going to hire assistants at your new facility or even interns. Like what are the key, uh, you know, common denominators or key traits that you want to see in those people? Yeah. So do you want, uh, should I talk about the process that we're doing in order to get interns or do you yeah, just want to talk, talk about personality about, traits? Talk about personality traits and then what you're, how you're going to be looking. Cause people might be listening to this, looking for a job. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think the number one thing I look for is, and this sounds silly, but you have to have some level of consciousness of, you know, what you're looking for and how to talk to people. And this is why I say it. 
I got an Instagram direct message the other day from somebody I've never met. And this happens probably, I, I can't even count, I can't imagine what you get to. And it right, says, right. hey, bro, what are some things that you know that nobody else knows that you could tell me? And I'm sitting there looking at that and I'm like, who talk, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah. You know, so, you know, I just look for the basics. Do you have a good handshake? Do you look me in the eye? Yeah. You know, can you send a thoughtful email? It, you know, just recognizes we're all busy, you know, but if you could get back to me, I'd love to learn more, right? Like, I remember when I first started coming out, like, I would meet coaches that I knew were making $400,000 a year and I'd buy them lunch yeah. and I had no money, right. you know, but it was right. just, it was more of a signal of like, I'm willing to invest in your time. Yeah. You know, I've had people ask, yeah, some interesting things. So just some kind of social awareness I think is huge. Um, then a level of commitment, somebody that, you know, wants to see something through as opposed to just puddle jump, you know, and that was yeah. something, like I said, that was a big struggle in my career getting an NFL offer, something I had wanted for over three years, four years even, but knowing that I had kept my commitment to something that was gonna be harder. Now there's this pervasive fear that if you hire somebody, are they gonna jump for the next team gig, private sector gig, what have you. So a level of commitment and just, I I think Angela Duxworth would call it grit. Um, You know, and then the willingness to learn, right? But if I can find somebody that's got social fluidity, adaptability, is conscious of like, social intelligence, I can teach them about periodization. I can teach them about programming. The inverse is not always true. Right. right? I'm sure. Do you see this at your internships as well? Oh yeah, for sure. No, that's great. Uh, yeah. And Andy Galpin actually just talked, uh, earlier today and I sat in on his saying the same thing, like learn how to write a proper email learn how to be professional through social media. Yeah. Imagine the reach, right? I mean, cause social media is such a great tool to meet people and connect with people. If, if someone poses that same question to you in a professional, uh, you know, nice manner, you probably get back to that person, right. you know, <laughs> especially cause I don't, nobody ever really got back to me. I felt like when I came out, like, and that was just, you know, maybe I reached out to the wrong folks, you know, yeah, what have you, yeah. but you always like, it's just about saying, Hey, you know, sir, madam, you know, or, or address their title right. and just say, I'm sure you're very busy. I'm a coach that's just looking to learn a little bit more. I'm willing to buy you lunch, buy you coffee. Yeah. You know, I'd be really grateful. Yeah. You know, any help is appreciated. Now, you know, yesterday I answered an email and I probably, you know, I spent 25 minutes, 30 minutes writing responses. Cause I mean, it was almost like it was an, in, it was um, a graduate assistant for a university yeah. and they were asked to reach out to somebody. But this read like a job interview. So I just tried to be really thorough. And the only response I got was, cool, thanks. And I'm just like, dude, I just wrote you 30 minutes. And I, you know, everybody's time is valuable. Mine, mine no more so than anybody else, but it was amazing. Like, cool, thanks. I was like, okay, okay, bud, cool. That's a lot. Think about that. Right. Yeah. And time might be the most valuable commodity that we have, right? By far. And uh, speaking of that and speaking of time and speaking of, all these things that you have going on. I know you're, you've spoken all over the place in the last year. We've crossed paths a bunch of times. <laughs> uh, you're starting your own facility. You moved across the country. How do you maintain this work-life balance and have a wife and a life? And <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, that's definitely a good question. That's one that a lot of folks ask now, right? Like, right. I think to me, I look at it as seasons. You know, I really do, whether it's seasons of athletic preparation or just the seasons, you know, that we all experience geographically. Um, there's sometimes where there's no such thing as work-life balance, right? And you, you're just going in that hole. 
And then the, there's other times where you have a little bit more of that freedom. Um, so I think that you can't chase this ideal. You just have to go a certain times a year and then maximize your presence in whatever time that was. I knew when this book came out, there were going to be some opportunities to speak and I didn't want to sacrifice that. So I knew I was going to travel a good bit. Um, and you also have to balance it with your athlete training. Thankfully, you know, most of the pro guys I train, they travel a good bit too. So they're pretty understanding. So some weeks we may train, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, other weeks, it might be more of your traditional four day split, but we always try to make sure we get consistent days in within a certain time frame, as opposed to really being like, we have to train every Wednesday. It's not the reality. Like right now working with Tyrod Taylor, he's got to go do stuff for a nonprofit. He's got to go do this. Like I can't get locked into just big squat Wednesday. That's not always going to be his reality. Um, so, and then I've just tried being, uh, I fail sometimes at the unplugging piece. Um, you know, I try to be pretty active, I think, because I had a chip on my shoulder of, again, not many people always reaching out to me when I started. I try to almost be out there all the time for folks, but sometimes that eats away at me because I answer almost every message and I realize, wow, I just wasted this hour I could have had with my wife. So if you're listening and I don't get back to you sometimes, just understand I'm trying to work on that, reach back out at a later date. Yeah. And that's great too. I mean, that's what, uh, again, Andy was talking about making sure to set boundaries, you know, whether that's, I don't need answer emails on the weekend or I stop doing it at whatever time. Yeah. Um, I think we all kind of get to a point, uh, where we get, I, I shouldn't say we all get sucked in to being active on social media and trying to be helpful to other people and then you realize that like you're way too in depth in it and like yeah. you got to take it becomes a, break a social anxiety because yeah. you feel like yeah. if you're not answering stuff i mean it, people can perceive it our field's fickle too let's be honest right. like right. i've had some folks that because i didn't answer to a facebook message in like an hour they're like why you're not responding now and i'm like dude i, I don't get on my facebook messages much like <laughs> yeah. calm down yeah so um what do you, what's coming up for you? When's, uh, do you have a date for the facility opening yet? Not or, yet. Okay. So that's what we're still dealing with. That's why it's still a fluid situation. We have the branding kind of complete. We have, you know, we're working on the website, things like that. We had a building locked in and transparently it just, it fell through the company, a company came and bought it out from us for like three times the price, some big art deco (laughs) company. So you, we want to find the right space. Um, that's why we're not trying to be too loud or noisy with the announcement because so many things are fluid with that. Right. So once that date comes, we'll announce it, you know, I'll announce it on Instagram or what have you. We want to keep it pretty low key. We're not trying to be the loudest people out there. We just want to be a good coach development training place. Um, until that time, I just continue to coach and speak. So July is a busy month. Guys are finishing, getting ready for NFL training camp. Um, so I'll go back and I'm working with about 10 to 15 guys right now. Um, I have some guys in the NBA as well that, you know, it's their time to get away for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. So mainly football, NBA, some fighters um, and uh, speak and, and continue to lock those things in. So great. No, that's cool, man. Um, I have some kind of fun go to questions I really like to ask. Um, People who listen to the podcast have gotten used to these, I think. So, uh, can you name any three people, living, dead, or fictional characters that you would like to have dinner or a conversation with? Sure, yeah. Um, Ben Franklin, okay. without question. Napoleon Bonaparte, just nice. because of his mind for strategy. Yeah. And I, I'm a big Fantastic. believer in classical history and, and those kinds of things. Um, and then I think the other one would be um, Robert Greene. Or Adam Grant, who I actually just had the opportunity to speak to the other day, which is pretty cool. So Adam Grant is a 
professor of organizational psychology at Wharton. Oh, nice. And nice. because of my interest, strong interest in behavior, yeah. uh, he was just really fascinating to listen to. And he's not, he was around, I think he's 31 or 32 and cool. he's just seen some unique things. So, yeah. um, yeah, I would say somebody that, you know, had been involved in the, the political and inventor yeah. and innovator like space, it. military strategist, and then yeah. somebody that understands behavior. I like it. Uh, okay. Quick sidebar question since you just brought that up. What would be another book resource if people liked your book, they're like, man, this behavioral stuff, super interesting. Do you have another one off the top of your head? Sure. Yeah. I think Robert Sapolsky's behave is a great book for people to read. It's a big one. Um, it's very fascinating, but, uh, you know, this is a bold claim, but I really think that in the next five to 10 years, if not sooner, behavioral elements of performance are going to continue to really pick up, you know, and I, and I think that you're seeing it more and more where we see so many coaches resistant to things. The key there is opening that and and making them want to, to need our, our, um, solutions, right. And, and getting athletes, people have agendas. That's not, there's nothing wrong with admitting that that's human nature and you've got to understand how to balance that. So, yeah. Um, Appreciate the other tip. Um, is that the same guy that wrote Zebras Don't Get Ulcers too? Perfect. Yep. Okay. Um, all right. This is my favorite question, actually. If you had a magic wand and you could eliminate any coaching practice, what would you get rid of? Yeah, we had talked about this a little bit before, right? Yeah. I think if you were to ask me three to four years ago, it would have been the traditional answer of, you know, jumping on BOSU balls and all the functional stuff that people took away out of context. I think now that's almost kind of like a too easy of a direction to go. So I would say, and this is just kind of soapboxy to a degree, but I just want to see the profession kind of continue to rid itself of the ego and insecurity. Like you know, that. like yeah, I right. think one thing that I've, I, I hear people now talk about all oh, social media is this, social media is that. You know what? Adapt. Yeah. You know, like yeah, social yeah. media is what it is. It's not going away no matter how anybody feels about it. This is just right. one example. Yeah. Um, and I hate when I hear coaches say, I'm too busy to do that. I'm in the trenches. Listen, if Elon Musk and some of these people are on social media, uh, I, I, I think we can figure out how to do it ourselves and be balanced. We're, our job is very important. We're not heart surgeons, right? Like, so if you're saying that you are spending all day, every day, adjusting your Excel template and you're coaching so much that you can't think of one idle, helpful thought to put out there in the morning or in the afternoon, I think we're kind of overplaying ourselves a little bit. So I think just kind of that ego and this monomania of this is the devil. That's the devil. Like, it's not that it's not that difficult just make some time and prioritize what you want to do or don't whine when the world adapts (laughs) around you no that's great and i love you know and that what i think about when you said that too is how people complain you know like about kids today and they're like oh they're so different and like who brought those kids Uh, up and allowed them to be like that uh, the we, people like us and now. those are older than us that are complaining about it. We, they didn't, they didn't get these phones when they were nine years old on their own. They didn't buy it with the job they had yep. when they were seven. Right. And that was one thing that Adam Grant said the other day is he said, you know, I was asking him about some of his speaking experiences and he goes, it's funny. Sometimes I go into some industries and, you know, I won't name them here, but he's like, they're more rooted on this kind of age bias of experience. And so they look at me, an organizational professor, but I'm not 40 years old or what have you yet. And they're like, ah, what do you think? He goes, but then I'll go speak for Google. And they're like, we love it. What old people know? They're rooted in too much of the old ways. And so it's just this balance. This isn't an age thing. It's not, it's it's an adaptability thing. You have to adapt yourself to the world or you can't complain when the world happens to you. Right. Right. Love it. That is fantastic. 
We should put that on a t-shirt, well, man. Listen, like that's one of the ways you and I connected. Yeah. You know, right, like there's right, a transparency right. there. There's, yeah. there's being able to put stuff out there. Like think of the good things if it's leveraged intelligently and you do a brilliant job of it. Absolutely. It's just about, you know, you've got to adapt to it. Otherwise, I don't know that you can consider yourself a multidisciplinary leader. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Uh, okay. This is another fun one. I really like this a lot. I stole this from Coach Mack and I told him I was going to steal it from him, but if you were this far along in a career that wasn't as a strength and conditioning coach, what would it be? Criminal profiler. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I'd be a criminal profiler or I'd be doing a little bit more of what I'm doing now, consulting. Yeah. You know, the, this was something I got in after I left kind of uh, API. and the, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm able to work now and dabble in team sport by being a consultant to certain teams in the NFL, rugby, what have you. I'm still able to coach. Yeah. And then I, so I love helping I love learning and then I like being able to solve other problems, having interesting discussions. But if it had to be an actual, like just locked in career, yeah. criminal profiler. Cool. Super cool. Yeah. yeah. You probably write another book, but along <laughs> different lines, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, love it. Um, cool. Well, a lot of people already know how to find you, but what's the best way to reach out if they hear this and they haven't connected with you yet? Sure. Best way is uh, I'm probably most active on Instagram these days. So just nice. at coach underscore Brett B. Uh, that's the best way. Um, my email's on the website. It's a super long email, info at bartholomewstrength.com. Um, so just go to bartholomewstrength.com. That's just a personal website. It's not my business website. Um, you can check that. Um, and then I'm very much a face-to-face or phone call guy. So if I don't get back to you on any of those mediums, please just you know reach out to me. I'm, you know, I'm always happy to make time. It might just be that I didn't see that email that day or what have you. I'll never big time anybody. Yeah. I'm not in a position to. Yeah. No. And super cool. And I, like you said, that's the way that we connected on social media. And then we set up a time. We sat down at our coaches conference a couple of years ago and, yep. and ate lunch together and kind of hit it off and connected and been in touch ever since. So super cool, man. Appreciate you being the on the show. No, thanks yeah. for the opportunity. Yeah. Looking forward to seeing you the rest of the time here at the conference. And uh, I'm sure we'll cross paths many times this year. Likewise. <laughs> thanks. Scott. This was the NSCA's coaching podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.